everything old is new again. America's entertainment pop culture talk show. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Felt the great disturbance in the force. Hello, I'm Mr. Ray. Come on, Mark, I got a job for me. Where's the goodies? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. I bet you wouldn't have done anything like this if Mom and Dad were here. You filthy criminal. Excuse me while I whip this out. Go ahead. Make my day. Here are your hosts, Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome to Everything Old is New Again, and uh, this is Douglas Viviani. Even the casual listener to Everything Old is New Again knows that on just about every broadcast, we sneak a Star Trek reference into the show. This week, I'm without my co-host, David Cohen, but in his place, I've garnered the guest of a legendary, legendary proportions for me uh, from the world of Star Trek in the second year of the original broadcast of Star Trek in 67. The producers introduced a new character into the program and brought levity, uh, accurate navigation through the stars, and even... uh, some pain and suffering from time to time. Uh, the then ensign Chekhov, uh, by way of the fine actor and our guest today, Walter Koenig, uh, was brought into our living rooms. And believe it or not, no matter how hard we try, through the power of reruns and on-demand TV, he's he's not left. Uh, besides portraying uh, Pavel Chekhov through the years from ensign to admiral now, Walter Koenig has appeared in numerous television shows, written books, written uh, television episodes, written for the stage and directed, uh, been in a number of movies outside of Star Trek, including Moon Trap, we'll talk about that and from 1989 with uh, Bruce Campbell, and of course appeared as a guest uh, star, and a recurring guest star, kind of a villain there, uh, in Babylon 5 uh, for approximately, I think it was 12 episodes, Alfred Bester, welcome Walter Koenig. Thank you, thank you very much, Doug. Now because of that introduction, we only have about three minutes left, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to give you your due. You know, you you earned it. You certainly uh, are in our house household uh, all the time. We we love us over uh, Star Trek over here and Babylon Five and all that you do and the conventions. We'll get into all of that today. Um, uh, and I want to talk about uh, Star Trek uh, and and other things besides Star Trek. But I want to dive into that just to begin with here. And when you first got the uh, the beginning, the just start at the beginning here at, at Star Trek uh, uh, the second season when you. You came on board. Did they uh, inform you in any way, shape, or form that, uh, and even was the rumor true that that they were looking for someone to kind of bring along a younger viewer, maybe a Beatles or a Monkees fan, and uh, and, and did they give you any kind of indication that um, that you were to fill those large shoes? You know, I, I it's, it's it's so long ago. Bear in mind, <laughs> we're talking fifty-two years yes. ago. Uh, it's it's hard to remember. Certainly, that was accurate, as opposed to the the PR that NBC put out that the Kremlin was was upset because they didn't have a Russian astronaut uh, aboard the Enterprise. That was hogwash. Uh, it was, in fact, a very pragmatic uh, decision to bring somebody that they felt uh, would fulfill the demographic of the very young pre-adolescent and. Um, so there it was. Uh, that's. I don't know when I learned that, but I think fairly, fairly soon into the uh, 
and today productions. Well, at, at some point, you gave point they uh, had you on stage right off the bat with the Beatles haircut. Uh, if you really look back at it, so I guess um, uh, they had whether they told you or not. It seems like everybody was jumping on board with the uh, the Beatles or the Monkees at that time in the late '60s or mid to late '60s. So um, and, and and listen, what difference it make? The point was that uh, when you came on board to me, uh, it added a little bit more of an element than that visiting navigator that would probably get into trouble or probably have some problem that ended his stay on the show. You certainly had trouble as a character, but you stayed on the show and brought some levity and and some fun to the show as well. So, um, I don't know, during those two years, I know there was uh, some growing pains and that you you want a little bit more meat to the part. I understand that. But in retrospect, as you go back, um, was it a rewarding experience as you look just at those first two years of this uh, of this show it was re- re- rewarding I got paid uh, every every time I worked so <laughs> that was rewarding uh, it was the first time that I'd had a fairly uh, constant uh, paycheck um, I uh, the first year was was so novel and so uh, and so different from anything that I experienced having a relatively steady job that I just enjoyed going to work um, you know, like everything else, you know, you require some stimulation as you go along. And when the role didn't expand particularly, um, I became a little restless. Uh, in fact, I left the series um, for a month in, in, the, in my second season, the third, third year of the show, to do a play in Chicago opposite Jackie Coogan. And, uh, you know, the, the actor who played opposite Charlie Chaplin when uh, he was like a child and that was great fun and i and i never regretted the fact that i took that month off uh to, to have that experience so uh, i'm restless i'm i have an ego I, I i felt i could do more than you know i i kept in and the warp factor two kept in and uh, uh so i uh i having um, been invited to to do the play i was uh, i was um anxious to go forward with that so yeah i've complained over the years uh and probably a lot of people resented it particularly actors who can't get any work but that's you know that's that's me i was i mean i was a um, i was a, uh, a a good soldier i didn't complain i didn't throw tantrums um but i i certainly felt uh, uh, a certain um something was missing in, in that opportunity, and it, which was accentuated and underscored by the fact that we'd go to make personal and personal appearances, and people were so so uh, positive, and happened, there was so much approbation and and uh, reinforcement, and for doing so little, so it, it sort of accentuated the whole sense of uh, I, I have this opportunity, but it's not really uh, the opportunity that I might have had the uh, the writers um, been instructed to write uh, more rewarding material for the character. Bear in mind, I'm not the only actor who was in that position. George Takei, uh, Michelle Nichols, uh, also felt a little um, frustrated by, the, by, on the one hand, all of the accreditation uh, that we received, and on the other hand, on the... Uh, on the lack of uh, substantial 
uh, things to do on the show. Which is totally understandable, but uh, from a fan's point of view, certainly uh, you, you did add quite a bit to the show. But I think what you're saying is a precursor to when they did Next Generation. They basically took what you're saying and expanded that. Those seven characters that were on uh, this, the this Enterprise or... Yeah, I guess you'd say the Enterprise for that show uh, had the opportunity. They all had individual. If you look at it, they had individual shows focused on them. Um, you know, they passed the baton a little bit. Certainly, there were stars that uh, that were in every show and, and lots of the scenes. But they did share it, and you did explore the backstories of almost all those characters. And I think you were a precursor, kind of to that, inadvertently or, or on purpose, whatever it might be, with these producers to say, you know what, these other characters have other things to do. And um, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that. that it seemed to have happened for the next generation that what you were looking for. Well, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, some of it has to do with the, the times. We had more, back in the 60s, there was more of a caste system regarding uh, television series and the, and the regular uh, players uh, on those shows. Um, it was just uh, standard practice that you'd have you know, the uh, most significant principles um, being uh, focused on and those uh, subordinates, those secondary characters being more in the background. And it showed up in the credits. Uh, the credits uh, in those days, the real stars of the shows were received their credits at, at, at the top of the show and the uh, secondary characters received theirs at the back. In fact, we received ours in between the guest stars. So it, it wasn't a great deal of acknowledgement to those performers. But hey, you know, as I said, um, I was just grateful for the opportunity to have a, uh, uh, a, a job uh, most weeks. And um, I felt very thankful for that. Um, but, you know, you, you get restless. You're an actor. You, Absolutely. You're, in this, you're in this job because either you have a very strong ego or because you have a you have a weak ego, and a weak ego demands um, uh, validation, and uh, and validation comes in in terms of the uh, the work that you do, and the success you have doing it, and the uh, the uh, the praise of those watching it, and I I, I guess I suffered really from a from a weak ego because. Um, uh, I, when I wasn't challenged as an actor, I felt uh, I really felt being a secondary that I was a secondary character. And it, you know, affected um, my attitude about things. Well, you're a starring character on Everything Old is New Again at this point. We'll uh, take that as a segue. Uh, we'll come back right after this on Everything Old is New Again with Walter Koenig. You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Plant life of extraordinary intelligence and technology. They have captured Mr. Spock, apparently under the orders of a human named Caniculus. Something's happened to his brain. Electrical activity decreasing. It's too late, Captain Kirk. In a few minutes, your friend will be gone. Murderer! You've killed Spock! Behold, gentlemen, the dawning of a new era, Spark 2. 
Ah, uh, welcome back to Everything Old is New Again. That's a little piece of uh, Infinite Vulcan, which is an episode of the Star Trek animated series, I believe, in 73. Uh, we're sitting down talking with the actor, director, writer, Walter Koenig. We're very happy to have him on board. I just want to dive into that. That's basically a, uh, an episode where Spock is cloned and into a, like a giant Spock. And in order to do so, you need to uh, eliminate or kill the original Spock. Of course, they find a way around that uh, with the help of the giant Spock. Uh, leaving two spots. How many times can I say that word? Um, but the question is, um, there's a theme there and a message, and Walter Koenig, you're the author of that episode. So um, please take us, if you can, behind the scenes of, of writing the episode, and, and what were you trying to tell us? Was there a morality play? Was it just for fun? Where do we go with this? Well, the, 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 the background of that is, I, when Star Trek was canceled, um, it was as if uh, the uh, telephone company had uh, had uh, turned off my phone, and uh, I, this this didn't ring. There were no uh, there were no invitations to audition. Um, there was uh, really uh, my activity as a professional uh, was curtailed uh, so abruptly and so completely that it was rather. Um, Rather distressing. So I, I, I finally decided that I had to find a way, to, reason to get out of bed in the morning, and stop staring at the um, cracks in the ceiling. So um, I, I did, determined to to write a um, a novel, and I, that gave me purpose and uh, an object uh, uh, to point for. And I did that every every morning uh, for about six months until I finished it. And at some juncture from there, I wrote a screenplay. I don't remember the, the exact course of events, but I, I wrote a screenplay, a suspense story, and I needed, I needed it. Um, you know, I was working on a typewriter with, with, with whiteout, and um, this was like 1971 or so, 70. And um, Gene Roddenberry's secretary uh, was willing to, you know, foresee. Uh, to write my to re to re uh, to rewrite my screenplay, to take out all of the mistakes, the typos I'd made, etc. And it was about then that the animated Star Trek was being discussed, and she showed him my screenplay, and he uh, liked it well enough to invite me in and discuss the possibility of writing for the animated series. So it was uh, at the time uh, cloning was. Uh, this is back in the early '70s. Was very topical. You know, it it had um, it had a resurgence later on, uh, maybe a decade or so later. But at that juncture, it was also uh, a very uh, a subject that was bandied about with uh, great enthusiasm. So I came up with the idea of the, of the Spock, and um, I guess I, I, I I'm not quite sure, but I think what people uh, Objected to was the fact that I made him a giant Spock. Well, that was a choice I made. This is, after all, is animation. Right. And but what I didn't, what I didn't count on was putting him on a planet where they were talking vegetables. And I felt if we're going to have talking vegetables, and that was Gene's idea, then anything goes. Right. Right. <laughs> so, so I, I think maybe that was my justification for making Spock a giant. Um, I had fun writing the first, the first draft. However, um, Gina, evidently, which I learned much later, was notorious for asking for rewrites. I thought I was the only one that he put to that task. 
And so I wrote a second draft and a third draft and a fourth draft and a fifth draft ad infinitum ad nauseum. Mm. And um, finally, I guess after nine or ten, he said, okay, we can shoot this. And uh, that's the way it went. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, whimsically, I named one of the plants a Redlaw plant, which is Walter backwards, <laughs> because at that at that juncture, I thought, you know, whatever I do can't be more absurd than having cabbages and tomatoes uh, <laughs> talking. But but um, then again, you've got you know youngsters watching it too, so you're you know you're okay. You're in the, you're in the game. Yeah. You know. Well, you know, I've got to tell you, off 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 the beaten path here for a moment, off from Star Trek. I, I wrote an episode of a series, a, 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 a live-action but Saturday morning series called Land of the Lost. Right. And um, I wrote it, and I, and I submitted it, and they said thank you, and I didn't think much about it. I came to learn maybe 20 years later uh, from enough sources that I think it, it was vetted uh, sufficiently to say that it was considered one of the... Uh, most popular episodes of the series, and that the character became uh, very, uh, very much uh, uh, one of the principal guest characters on the show. It's odd how Hollywood works. Where you, you find that out much later. No one doesn't call you and tell you that from the show, right? I mean, it's right, right. Show. In fact, they even, they even made a bank with with uh, my character that they sold commercially. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, let's go a little bit further. You, you didn't stop there. That You continued those two. Then in 77, you did a show. I, I watched. I think it was only on one year, but I, I enjoyed it. What really happened to the class of 65? And um, basically, uh, you did an episode there. It was a class athlete who went to Vietnam and was a prisoner of war for a number of years and became, uh, uh, well, his life changed because his wife became, over that time period, a successful businesswoman. His son didn't know who he was when he came back. So, I mean, that, um, that's a lot of issues there. There's a lot of, uh, a, a lot of characterization that you created there uh, before and during the time where Vietnam was, uh, you know, was over or just about over. And um, I mean, actually, I think it's still going at that point. So the point is, it was very topical, but you also dove into some real characterizations with, uh, the, um, with this show. I mean, was there a good reaction to that? Were you happy with the way that uh, was, was presented for, you know, your screenplay presented by them? First of all, I've got to tell you, I'm very impressed that you remember that show. <laughs> uh, I'm an odd guy, but this, we, that's why we're America's pop culture talk show, you know? <laughs> no choice to know all this stuff. As a matter of fact, of the four or five shows that my name appeared on, television shows in the 70s, that was, uh, that, that was the one that I have the greatest pride in. I feel I did the best job. And, uh, uh, and uh, it was tickled that it appeared uh, as I had written it. Um, uh, you know, I had never written before. This is one, it's a, a very curious thing, Doug, is I mean, you think typecasting is, is only in terms of actors, but I, I think ultimately, I mean, I pitched several story ideas to the producer, but I think ultimately I was, even one was chosen because I looked young enough to have been a part of that class of 65. I was about nine or ten years older than that, but he thought that the producer, I think, thought that I had graduated at that at that time. In any event, I I, I enjoyed doing it, and I, I but I really I wasn't that conversant with um, how to write uh, a teleplay, and my 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 story came in at about 80 pages, and uh, it should have been about 54. 
So all of the editing that was in, and we had no editor, it was just the producer and me, all the editing was on, by me, and I cut it down and cut it down, and I couldn't believe that I could cut it down that much and still make sense of it. But, you know, you find a way. So, yeah, I was, I was, I, I, I don't know, know if I ever canvassed the community and learned what other people thought, but I felt pretty good about it, and the, the uh, young actress who played, I, I think she played the mother on the show. She was on another series called Family. Not all in the family, but Family. And um, she recommended me to her producer, but she thought I wrote well for women. So, and that led to another uh, another show, and, and after that, still another one. Which is great uh, to hear that you know it's it's, it's sometimes you see uh, actors on on the uh, on the screen and you don't realize you know you, you do get typecast in the audience mind and then to see you and a lot of people are doing that now again you're a precursor stepping out from in front of the camera to behind to to write it uh, it must have been rewarding unfortunately we have to take a break here for a moment we'll come back and continue talking with Walter Koenig uh, from uh, uh, <laughs> the class of uh, the writer of uh, one episode of the class of sixty five we'll be back right after this. Now, back to America's Entertainment Pop Culture Talk Show. Everything old is new again with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. You can't trust Byron or his people. Now you see that I was right. And maybe we could have avoided this if we'd opened negotiations. You can't talk to them. You can talk to her. You can talk to me. Everyone talks to me. People like talking to me. I guess I just have that kind of face. But you can't talk to them. They can't be trusted. Just leave it to us. And if Garibaldi is killed? Zack gets his room. There we go. Everything old is new again here. Back with Walter Koenig, a quote there from Babylon 5, this Besser character, which is kind of a slimy, kind of a, I don't know if they say that, but a conniving kind of a villain on Babylon 5 that, that Walter Koenig, our guest, uh, appeared on 12 times, five seasons on Babylon 5, a recurring character that really uh, made an impression, I think, upon people. Um, I know that that was one of the things that you're proud of in terms of acting. Maybe getting a tech, tech as behind the scenes and, and yourself as to getting the call to do the show and, and what you thought about doing another sci-fi and, and certainly about this character. Well, yeah, I, I'll try to, I'll try to, uh, to rec- rec- recapitulate as, as quickly as I can. Um, I knew the producer, J. Michael Straczynski, uh, uh, casually, very casually. And... Um, uh, when I got the call, I was rather surprised, and uh, I was cast in, a, in an early episode of the first season. But um, before I could shoot it, I, uh, I was appearing at a convention in Chicago, personal appearance, and um, I, I had a heart attack, and I had a quadruple bypass uh, there in Chicago. And the first person, other than my wife that I called, was Jay Michael and told him that I was not going to be available to shoot that episode. And his reaction was very unlike what you would expect in Hollywood. Um, he said, well, we're going to we'll try to hold the episode for you so that when you're recovered, uh, we can shoot it. And I thought that was extraordinary. I think it probably helped me uh, uh, get better sooner. <laughs> and... Uh, but then I got another call saying that they were, since he was writing all of the episodes, 
and they were running out of episodes and they wouldn't be able to, to hold, to wait for me. And I certainly understood that. But then I got a third call saying that he was going, he was going to um, write another character instead so that when I, uh, after a couple of weeks when I got home, I would be able to do that. And indeed he did. And, and it's, it's, it's the silver lining in the black cloud because whereas the first character he wrote would have been a one-shot, this turned out to be recurring. And uh, Bester, the character that I played, was something I felt extremely comfortable with. And I loved the cast. They were all terrific. You know, it had been about eight or nine years since since I had done the, my first episode of Star Trek, or more than that. It was more than that. It was maybe 12 or 15 years. In any case, that cast system I talked about had sort of evaporated. Uh, there was a new... There was a new uh, way of doing things in town and all of the all of the just like you said about next generation all of the actors were given a significant time on screen and uh when bester made his appearances he was pivotal to the story as opposed to sitting you know at a console right. punching buttons that didn't really move and saying i i captain so uh, that was terrific. It was terrific that I had such nice people to work with, so friendly and so treating me so much as an equal. And it was great that the the, the character had substance, and um, I had an opportunity to do something other than talk with an Ertzatz Russian accent. Right. It's also interesting that two stars of sci-fi of the '60s, uh, yourself and, and Billy Moomy from Lost in Space, end up on this uh, show, which became quite popular. Obviously, it was in, in syndication and ran for, I think, for '94 to '98, somewhere around there, five seasons. And um, uh, it was. Uh, it, it did you have an opportunity to to work with uh, with Billy Moomy at all? I know he's on tons of those episodes. I don't know if I remember seeing your characters interact too much. No, I didn't get to work with him, but yeah. I got to talk to him. We were in makeup together. Uh, terrific guy. Uh, to this day, he's, he's he's very self-motivated. He has a band. He's had records. He had a couple of hits, in fact. Uh, he, he draws uh, or he, he writes comic book stories um, that are published. Um, he's uh, always busy. He has a terrific family. Um, yeah, we weren't real close, but um, I've always uh, ad admired his work, and I uh, admire his his um, who he is. Well, speaking of comic books, I, I just to segue here a little bit out of place, but you know, in 2012, I believe it was uh, the time where a graphic novel came out, or a couple of comic books. I think he did four of them uh, called "Things to Come," and sort of apocalyptic vampires. And the idea is that was before The Walking Dead and the apocalypse and all that that you see on TV now. Um, a little bit of a precursor to, to that kind of a thing. What'd you What'd you feel about how uh, that was received? I, I, everywhere you look, uh, if you look that up. Everyone's uh, pretty much praising what you did there with these uh, these vampires. Well, I think we're getting into fiction now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, 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 you know, I had fun. I, I, I wrote it as, a, as an outline for a screenplay, and then I because uh, I, I wanted to get something back up there, and and then as I as I looked around and I saw that so so many. Uh, um, graphic novels were being turned into feature films, I thought maybe that would be the shortest distance between two points, writing it as a graphic novel so people could could see 
um, could actually see it like it's storyboarding uh, uh, a movie. And um, I had a terrific artist. Uh, I, 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 uh, the problems with the, with, with the book were mine. Um, I, uh, I, although I had written, you know, uh, three episodes of a, uh, for Malibu Comics of a, uh, a character called Raver, which I had created back in the 90s, um, I, made some, I made some mistakes, mostly uh, in not um, explaining. I kept shifting locations and time periods hmm. in, in my story, and I don't think I explained that sufficiently. And we had a, um, a situation where in order for the vampires to exist, that the sun had to be blocked out. So uh, I, 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 there was an ap- 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 apocalyptic event that occurred that left a, a, a gaseous haze over the earth, and so the sun couldn't shine through. So it, it, made, it made it available for, for vampires to be created. But it also made the book very dark, um, and it was hard to distinguish characters one from the other. I still think it's it's a very interesting story, and I had been approached on more than one occasion to to either re- republish it, I mean uh, have it have it published again, or uh, maybe even do a screenplay. But uh, I, I, as I look around me and I see that the world has moved from vampires to zombies. I'm not sure I would find the market that I thought was accessible to me uh, when I wrote it originally. But the vampires went crazy with Supernatural and all these other shows, uh, and you were right in the midst of that. So that's what I was trying to say, the, the apocalyptic aspect of it, too. You know, we've gone into the zombies, but uh, maybe you can make them vampire zombies at this point. That would be, <laughs> the, you know. <laughs> you can give me 5% for that idea, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back on Everything Old is New Again, enjoying some time, some time with Walter Koenig and having some fun talking all things Walter Koenig. Come on back. Hello. This is Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Where's Apollo? He disappeared again, like the cat in that Russian story. Don't you mean the English story, the Cheshire cat? Cheshire? No, sir. Minsk, perhaps. All right, all right. It makes me homesick. Just like Russia. More like the Garden of Eden, Ensign. Of course, Doctor. The Garden of Eden was just outside Moscow. Oh, what a nice place. There we go. Everything old is new again here with Walter Koenig. Uh, that's some uh, Chekhov-isms, if you will, from the TV show, uh, uh, of course, you know, Star Trek. Um, to me, I know uh, that uh, there are. Uh, this, we've had a discussion about that character and the, some limitations that you had, but bringing in some of those quips and some of that a uh, uh, little bit of a smile to your face uh, is memorable to the Star Trek fan and, and does... Uh, put the character in our, our hearts that we won't forget. Uh, so I just wanted to throw that out there. But, uh, Mr. Koenig, my thought is uh, about your writing. We were talking about you've, you've done uh, quite a bit, and, and uh, it, it seems like most of what you're writing is not just like a, like Paul McCartney said, silly love songs, you know. It's not mostly just kind of a writing just for a fun, silly story. It seems to be that you've got a message or uh, maybe a morality kind of play that you're having in your mind before or during the writing process of what you're doing here. Am I on base there or, or wrong? Well, you've been on base all day, so huh. uh, that's great. 
yeah, I, um, I, 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 I never sat down to write something that I said, well, this will be uh, popular to the, uh, to, to the common denominator of, of viewers and, uh, and therefore will be commercially successful. I mean, I've, certainly I've always wanted to sell what I, what I, what I created, but it's, it's, it, I've always sat down with an inspiration, with a sense of, well, I, I want to tell a story that, you know, that embraces a, a greater issue than simply uh, uh, simple-minded entertainment. And I think most writers, you know, feel that way. Um, or maybe not, I don't know. But that certainly has been my uh, my, my feeling when I, when, I, when I try to write something. Now, did that come from just uh, maybe the exposure to Star Trek? Was it something in your background before that? Because Star Trek, the series, did have an element of that for sure, which is the element I appeal to, that, that, that appealed to me, I should say, is the social commentary or looking at a particular civilization. How, how are they doing things differently than us? Is, is that right? Is it wrong? That kind of thing. I mean, that was in the shows that you were producing. I don't know. Did, did it have any influence on you or do you have that thought in your mind uh you know uh, independent of your experience well it might have had some subliminal influence it certainly didn't have any right out front influence i mean i was i was already 31 uh when i started on star trek right. i had already developed some ideas and some sense of uh ethics and philosophy and uh how we're supposed to treat each other and i think that's what d- drove my uh my creativity and, and the stories that I came up with, as you would see if you ever uh, could decipher um, um, uh, things to come. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I always, I always was trying to to, to write something that was, was was important to me that I, that I could be personally invested in. Um, but, you know, before we before we end this, and I know we have to uh, in, a, in a couple of minutes. Uh, I, I just wanted to jump in on something that uh, we we haven't touched on if you don't mind. Sure. And that's my conversion to a very very intense religious sect that believes in human sacrifice. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to say, um, I've done a couple of, uh, several very small independent fan films. Uh, fan insofar as they, uh, the money uh, that was, uh, that was, um, that was uh, contributed to the projects were basically from from fan contributions and um the the one that we just finished and had a screening of uh in a regular theater is um called um Renegade Renegade's Requiem right, right. and it's it's the uh the ultimate story Chekhov's ultimate story uh and uh, I'm I'm really Quite proud of a lot of things about it. Uh, 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 you know, uh, due to licensing situation with with CBS that which which owns uh, Star Trek, we had to actually remove every reference to Star Trek. So we had to take off insignias and change the, the shapes of ships and and not call the characters by their names. But it's you you recognize all the actors are from different different series of Star Trek, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, uh, Enterprise, 
Yeah, Nick, Michelle Nichols and uh, Tim Russ and, and Robert Beltran are, are in that, Gary Graham. So you definitely will recognize uh, the actors and the characters they play as well, for sure. Uh, that's definitely right. something to look at. We could, we could definitely get into that a little bit more, certainly uh, next show as well. Uh, we're spending a little okay. time with Walter Koenig, and I definitely and we're, we're prepared to talk about that. But look at that, because you can get that online. Just look up Renegades, um, uh, just Star Trek Renegades, and this one's, uh, I think you have the Requiem is, is the one that just was released. Well, I don't think it's going to say Star Trek this time. Oh, you're right. Okay, so just look up Renegades. Uh, and Requiem. Requiem, and that's what you, that's a good point. Uh, and you'll find that, and they play them, uh, uh, you can play them right on the computer. They're, they're great episodes. I, I have uh, a lot of fun with that. We could we could talk about that, too, uh, next uh, next uh, show. I, I'm very happy to uh, get into also the uh, the new voyages you did to serve all my days and of gods and men. So that'll be a lot of fun. I just want to turn the smidge here, and we'll pick this up a little later. Um, uh, the movie you did in 89, uh, one of the first movies I rented as I had a VCRs were just coming out, and uh, it, was, it was something that, uh, that was unexpected to me, a horror science fiction movie with Bruce Campbell called Moontrap, uh, and this uh, Lee Lombardi was, uh, was nice to look at too, wasn't she? Um, what did you think of that experience uh, with, with these characters in that movie? I had a great time. It was terrific. Uh, it was the first time I had ever had a, a leading role, uh, and uh, so that was great fun. And I proved to myself that you can be the lead and not be a, a jerk, that right. uh, you can be a good person and get along with your cast and, um, and, and, and the crew and uh, not be a dilettante and... Uh, and not try to order people around or ignore them. I, I, I hope you're reading the... Yeah, veiled reference to someone we might know, sure. We can... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this, is the, this is before um, uh, Babylon 5 uh, and, we're, and my opportunity were with uh, um, 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 Bruce um, Boxleitner and right. Jerry Doyle and all those folks who I had a terrific time with. Yeah, so uh, uh, everybody pitched in. It was a union film, which was important to me. Uh, but at the same time, we all helped each other. Uh, you know, uh, the makeup guy uh, person, uh, you know, uh, gripped for us if we needed it, and I pitched in and did whatever was was required to do. So, um, yeah, I had a terrific time. Uh, Robert Dyke was the director, and I think we did a pretty good job uh, overall. And uh, and and Bruce was delightful. Bruce Campbell. And he went on to do all these, the evil, what is it? Uh, yeah, yeah. E what are they, all these horror movies. He's a huge horror star now at this point. Uh, you must see him on the convention circuit, I guess, here and there. No, I don't know if he's doing that or not. But um, Yes, he is. In fact, we, I saw him in, in Spain. Uh, I was there to receive a, a, a Lifetime Achievement Award at a big film fantasy, science fiction fantasy festival, and uh, he was there as well. Uh, yeah, he, he was he was great to work with. Then he took me to in my first uh, hockey game, you know, of course, <laughs> Detroit Red Wings, and uh, yeah, it was it, overall I, I, have, I have absolutely no complaints 
about that experience. And we've had no complaints uh, talking with you, uh, Walter Koenig, uh, on Everything Old is New Again. Uh, hopefully we'll have you back next week uh, on Everything Old is New Again. We'll finish our uh, episode here with um, a little bit of the uh, Star Trek theme. And, and thank you for your time so much. We'll be right back right after this, or we should say we'll be back next week to continue talking with Walter Koenig. Everything Old is New Again. <laughs>